Welcome to episode 259 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. This week on the show, our special guest is Christopher Janney of Phenomenarts, Inc., a pioneer in the field of sound art, merging architecture, sound, light, and interactive technology. For over 30 years, Janney has been blending music and light with the physical space in very unexpected ways. His work invites the public to engage and connect. Christopher, welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So you're bringing uh, your show Exploring the Hidden Music uh, to the Boston University Dance Theater on Friday, June 8th at 8 p.m. And we encourage our listeners to check out that event. Um, could you talk a little bit about the musical collaborators and the dance collaborators who are, are featured in this performance and uh, tell us a little bit about how this group came together? Sure. So uh, exploring the hidden music is a concept that I've been pursuing now for about uh, six or eight years. Um, the idea that for me, hidden music is music that is uh, within things that we might see. Uh, and that could take us all the way back to the fourth century BC with Pythagoras and the notion of rhythm uh, within design. Um, and also then forward into the Renaissance where we see the relationship between music, literally harmonic music in the church and harmonic design uh, in the architecture. Um, and so the hidden music, exploring the hidden music is really just a catch-all phrase for me to talk about or think about. Um, the kinds of things that I'm exploring uh, both musically and visually. Uh, in, in this particular concert, uh, I have one of my all-time brother from another mother, Stan Strickland. He's, he and I have been making music since uh, the early 80s. Um, and uh, it actually began with he and I just starting to talk again over Christmas, of course, during the Super Bowl. <laughs> and thought, uh, you know, it's time that we uh, explore together again. And uh, so he had been doing some work with the keyboardist Josh Rosen, who I've worked with before also. And uh, the three of us sort of embarked from there, thinking about um, the different pieces of music that I wanted to bring and that they, and that they wanted to bring. Um, and from there, uh, we added three singers, and I wanted to always to finish the concert with a version of Heartbeat, which is the piece I did in the, began in the early 80s, actually, with Sarah Rudner from Twilight Tharp Dance, and then uh, set it on Mikhail Baryshnikov in uh, uh, 2000. And... Um, so that's always been a piece that I continue to explore uh, and continue to think about new ways and different ways to use it as an instrument of expression. Yeah, I think that piece in particular is 
highly relevant to to our audience. You know, their their interests uh, not only in music but emerging technologies because that. Uh, from what I understand, came from some of your work at MIT, where you had a, a medical sensor uh, that was attached to the body and and could you know pick up uh, the the human heartbeat uh, and and sort of uh, you know make that the instrument that the dancer was uh, articulating their their dance moves to. I, I think it's very interesting to me how you've incorporated sensors into your work, both on uh, uh, you know the pieces that you'll be doing, uh, you know, in June at Boston University, as well as all of the public art pieces that you've done through the years. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, sensors have have played a role in in your artistic vision? Yeah, sure. Well, I, you know, I think as an architect and a musician, sometimes I'm trying to make architecture more like music, trying to make it more spontaneous, more alive, and then on the other times trying to make music more like architecture, trying to make it more physical, more visual. Heartbeat is certainly an example of the latter. Uh, and the former, in terms of trying to make architecture more like music, the, in the in the mid '70s, even uh, when I was doing my graduate work at MIT, it was it was initially this idea of how to plug music into the uh, architectural environment, and uh, infrared sensors, uh, sonic sensors, different things that that I could use to basically make the real world, not the virtual world, I think that's the important distinction, um, to, but to make the real world somehow uh, an, uh, an interactive component of the music, or in the case of the installations, really allowing the people's movement through space to actually uh, be a component in what shapes the sounds that they're hearing. So I think the the, the fundamental idea is what, what today is called um, physical computing, which is uh, now they teach it in a number of schools and even music schools where, where basically um, students are looking for ways to plug the computer into the real world, whether it's um, sensors on plants and getting a sense of do they have some kind mm -hmm. of rhythm and movement as they grow uh, to... Um, you know, shooting cameras at clouds and how they move across the sky and let that be some kind of aspect that influences the musical composition. But it, it is that way of sort of taking it out of the theater, out of the performance space and putting it in the street. And I think that that's uh, a big, has always been a big interest of mine, sort of using music to sort of help people connect with their physical environment, have some sense of ownership that in fact when I touch this building, I actually trigger a sound or a light and or light lights up. So I can have a physical relation, I can play with the architecture as it were. And I think that begins to change the paradigm of how people might uh, live and perceive, and especially in urban environments. 
that that's all very compelling. And you did, as you were talking, draw the distinction between the virtual world and, and the real world. Uh, the things that are compelling about the real world are, are obvious and, and, and exciting, but why, why doesn't the virtual world also interest you? I know one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is, is the way that mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, is where technology is heading fairly quickly. Um, why have you not explored that more, taking some of the same ethos that has allowed you to do some, some lovely things in the real world and, and play with them in the virtual? Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, it, as an artist, you don't live in a world of uh, logic. You live mm -hmm. in a world of intuition. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm happy to sit here and tell you what I've done <laughs> and um, how it came about. That's not, in fact, necessarily the truth about how it occurred. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times uh, in the art, in the artist world, I find the solution before I find the problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think just as my, my training and my interest has always been in architecture and music, it's the architectural side has been in the real world, in the physical world. I was raised in Washington, D.C. Both my, my father worked in the government. My mother was a school teacher. Hmm. There weren't a lot of artists around for me to, uh, emu to, to, to mentor, but there was a whole lot of social consciousness in the 60s, yeah, especially in Washington, D.C., so, and, and that was a big thing in my family. So, you know, sort of thinking about ways that you can affect social change in the physical world was uh, something I thought a lot about. Um, it... It, it's not that I'm not interested in what's going on in the virtual world, especially sonically, where we have, you know, some fantastic, you know, multi-speaker and uh, environments and, and, and things of that effect. But I'm, 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 I'm not for putting something over my eyes and something over my ears mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. take me out of the physical world. I'm not saying there aren't uh, good things that can be done with that. Sure, sure. Um, but... Uh, you know, my interest is really about being in the street, and uh, I've yet to understand how I could walk around in the street with my eyes covered and <laughs> my ears covered. <laughs> so that's where I stand. I'm, Fair enough. <laughs> I'm afraid that we're all going to have to do that to survive the next couple of years. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the things that I find uh, fascinating about uh, some of your, you know, public art pieces uh, is how it humanizes spaces that are otherwise seemingly, you know, cold or inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, the places that you're um, transforming with, you know, some of your public art, uh, including like the sound stair, for instance, turning a mm -hmm. staircase, which is a transitional environment at best, mm -hmm. something that I race through, right, on the way to the subway or uh, on the way to an appointment, right, now becomes a playful place. Um, uh, similarly, the, you know, the parking garage, you couldn't have picked a more difficult, you know, mm -hmm. environment to be in if the parking garage at Logan Airport in Boston mm -hmm. is, you know, the, the ascent to uh, Hades, maybe. Um, but you've made it, you know, a delightful, you know, uh, uh, rainbow uh, light mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and fun to be around. When your first um, you know, addressing a piece and thinking about the interactions, 
you know, intuition, uh, John, not thinking <laughs> what, what, <laughs> like, how do you approach making a, you know, a difficult space playful? What, what, how, how do you find that inspiration to, you know, transform those spaces? Sure. Uh, you know, when I first, uh, thought about Soundsteer <clears throat> at MIT 1976, 77, um, it was obvious to me in about a minute because I would look at the stairway and I'd see people ascending or descending through space and I, and I have probably a slight case of synesthesia and I, I could hear and I could see the rhythmic patterns of their footsteps mm -hmm. and I could hear that in my head, and ascending, you know, moving through space with ascending tones and descending with descending tones. So then the, it's very important to me that the, that the fundamental idea be as simple and as clear as possible, especially if you're going to do something in the public realm. You know, people aren't, you have to make at least the first level of it. It can be multidimensional, but it, it has to be almost as obvious as I like touch here. Yeah. Okay. So when I'm asked to design a piece for a space, you know, I'm basically looking at it as visual music. I'm watching the rhythmic patterns of the people moving through the space. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sort of seeing where people stop or turn or for whatever reason the space is, is pushing them to go one way or the other. Um, uh, as in the case of Logan Airport, okay, uh, people, what do people do here that is interactive? Well, they touch the buttons on the elevators. So, okay, there's a link where they're going to have to do this physical motion. Mm -hmm. Let's turn that into some kind of uh, sonic event. So, you know, basically, the from as an architect, the, my site analysis is really looking at it as a piece of visual music. And from there, trying to keep it on that plane of just playful curiosity, try to just coax out that muse and let that muse just look and watch and think. And then from there, think about how the, how the kind of things that I do might easily integrate into what's there. As a designer, I spend a lot of time thinking about unintended consequences in the things that I create. When I hear a, an elevator, the buttons having different tones, I think about people going in and pushing all of the buttons sure. and disrupting the, the function of, of the elevator. Um, are there any of those sort of unintended consequences when, when you're trying to bring sort of, you know, delight and immersion and, and wonderful moments into environments that are generally intended to be efficient in terms of how they're used. Have you, have you run into any of that in, in your, your many experiences here? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Uh, um, I don't, I don't um, experience it so much, haven't seen it so much in the permanent installations like in parking garages and the New York City subway. I mean, people are generally, uh, especially in the morning in the subway, they're very focused and getting to work. So they might just hold up their newspaper as they go by the peace reach and trigger the melodic tones on the way to work. Um, 
uh, in the afternoon when, you know, people are a little more relaxed and they're through their business day, then you and the trains don't move quite as fast. Um, you see people start to play more. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I think the, the power of the sound, especially in that installation, is there to push against the anxiety that people feel in the subway. Yeah. I mean, you're underground in a totally man-made environment, but your ears are hearing the sounds of a rainforest. So that kind of provocative curiosity can focus the energy. Now, that's not to say I can see where somebody tried to take a baseball bat to my artwork, <laughs> but you know that's one reason why I build it out a quarter-inch aluminum plate. Because, yeah. okay, you have to think about things like that. And of course, uh, the touring piece of mine, Sonic Forest, which I've toured many, many music festivals in the U.S. and Europe, and we're actually going to do it for Hub Week this year, and then at the, the new development, Union Point. Uh, a music festival, there's 100,000 people. There's all kinds of things that can pull your consciousness one way or the other. Yeah. There's, there's at least one who's going to try to Mess it up. Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. so uh, in a case like that, you know, uh, we, we always have security nearby, sure. as there is at a music festival in that kind of environment. And, you know, a couple of times I've had to intercede and try to talk somebody down. But if somebody's going to try to trash it, let them trash it. Yeah. Because hopefully the rest of the people there will say, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? And so, you know, it's not for me to try to... F- push people to do or not to do what they want. It's it's a little bit in the John Cage condition where I set the piece up and then I'm there just with everybody else observing what can and cannot happen. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean I haven't tweaked the Sonic Force over the years and try to think of ways, okay, there's ways that I can make this so you can't turn these things over. Yeah, yeah. Because I know somebody in Everly is going to try. But, you know, that's that's part of being out in the real world, isn't it? Yeah, You know, this is not something, this is not a panacea that I have here. And it's not something that's going to make everybody's, elevate everybody's consciousness. But, yeah. uh, you know, I'm still interested to be out there and, and, and try to make these things happen and see how they do, changes pe- do change people's perception of space. Yeah. Are, are there any sort of recent, you know, in the last couple of years or current or upcoming technologies that you're particularly excited about because you are so aggressive in, in using technology in, in creative ways? Is there anything that you've really, really been jazzed about either that you're already using or that you're sort of planning to use? Well, you know, there's been a lot of uh, development with um, audio speaker sensors that can go on glass and, hmm. that, and that translates turns the glass into the speaker. So literally it's vibrating the glass. Interesting. And uh, so, you know, in a case where, you know, I do installations on the facade of a building at the ground level, this to me is a solution to a problem. I don't have to have any audio speakers. (laughs) I can literally, and that also just artistically, okay, wait a minute, now I can actually, the the glass, which is part of the building, yeah. is now really, wow. em- really embedded as part of the artwork. So, yeah. you know, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to make that invention. I don't want to improve that invention. Yeah. I have a way to use it, and I'm sort of, you know, working with a couple of companies that are are improving and developing it. But that's a piece of technology that I really look forward to that's cool. using because how it integrates the architecture of my work with the architecture of my piece. Yeah. 
Yeah, that feels like you you could do some scary and very cool things yeah. with that. Uh, you know, with a building, say, you know, skyscraper. There's so much yeah. uh, glass to well, utilize. That's that's okay. Well, <laughs> that's an imagination to work right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Christopher, you've you've worked with you know pretty much a who's who of of jazz musicians and uh, musicians in general and dancers and architects. Uh, you know, who, who are the people who you'd like to work with, uh, you know, uh, or that you'd imagine collaborating with? Well, a lot of them are dead. Okay. <laughs> you know, Miles Davis, you know, right. I, I did have a conversation with him once, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't make it happen, right? Jimi Hendrix, you know, all these great people that whose music really inspired me. Um, but on the other hand, you know, that's a reason to take that energy and think about, okay, who is um, manifesting that energy, that, that zeitgeist mm -hmm. at this time. And, um, you know, there's uh, a, a number of visual, Anish Kapoor, who's a great visual artist, um, and whose work I, I really admire. You know, if you, you might know him by the, the, the Bean in Chicago. Right. That's his piece. And um, certainly, you know, it's funny because there's a number of writers and filmmakers like the Cone brothers or the Nolan brothers. I mean, Memento is like one of my all-time most fa favorite movies. I Fantastic just film. I just I just watched it again a week ago. Yeah, I watch it every couple of years. Holy shazoli. Yeah. Just the way it can the, the, not not just the story but the form of the medium, the way they use that. Yeah. And, you know, they had two stories going at once. One's going backwards, one's going forwards. I mean, it's just fantastic. And, and, uh, and you know, somebody like Aaron Sorkin, you know, I just, I love pretty much anything that he writes. Um, uh, I'd love to see you work with Shane Carruth, if you know who Shane yeah, is. sure, sure. I mean, every idea begins with a thought, all right? And so, you know, the writer, especially in in television and film media, that's where it's that's the spark. Okay, if you think that in fact art or invention or genius, as Edison said, is one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration, sure. <clears throat> but that one percent, if you don't have that one percent, you don't have that spark. It's not going to light. Mm -hmm. It's not going to go. And it's the writers and and and. The, the, where the idea is created. I'm not saying it doesn't develop and, you know, all kinds of things happen, but that spark has to be there. And, you know, after a while, you know, you you watch or read, you know, things by Aaron Sorkin or Walter Isaacson. I mean, all the different biographies. And you say, like, wait, this guy knows how to generate a spark. So I would be really great to, to hang out with him yeah. and just see where it goes. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. We really appreciate your time. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. 
The music that you've heard throughout the show, interspersed with our conversation, is uh, courtesy of Christopher Janney, and should remind you that his upcoming performance is at the Boston University Dance Theater. Uh, Exploring the Hidden Music will be on Friday, June 8th at 8 p.m. You can find the Digital Life Show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you'd like to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And, of course, the whole show is brought to you by GoInvo, a studio designing the future of healthcare and emerging technologies, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at DNemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. Christopher, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Yes, well, you can certainly go to www.jannysound, that's J-A-N-N-E-Y-S-O-U-N-D.com. And from there, there's a link uh, where you can send me some email, or if you can remember this, or write it down, info, I-N-F-O, at jannysound.com. And I look forward to interacting with anybody who'd like to send along an email. Thanks again, Christopher. So that's it for episode 259 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Nehemiah, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>